Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 28 of Mike Check on Sports. I'm Steve Napolitani. Baseball is back. Both sides finally were able to come to an agreement for a 60-game season. Training camps opening July 1st, with the first game scheduled to start at the end of July. It's so good to have sports slowly coming back, and for all of us to hear all those familiar voices again on TV and radio. My next guest played high school hockey under Mike Keenan. He played a variety of roles on Hockey Night in Canada, and he's been the voice of the Detroit Red Wings for over 20 years. It's Fox Sports Detroit's Ken Daniels. Ken, how are you? Steve, great. How are you? I'm doing okay. So since the NHL paused on March 12th, how have uh, you been spending your time? Instagram. Yeah. And <laughs> a lot of Zoom interviews. Um, we've had, uh, you know, classic games on Fox Sports Detroit. So, you know, from Steve Eisenman and Scotty Bowman and down the road, reliving those moments, Barry Smith. And so that's been good, but that was a while ago. And since then, just Instagram and what this has done, the pause has got me to look back at, at old footage. Uh, and we've had close to 7,000 views of Gordie Howe elbowing me in a, in a fantasy camp game from 1985 <laughs> in Lake Placid. The only thing I regret about that is I can't get the audio from it. I know Danny Gallivan was down there to actually call it. It mm-hmm. was like, how oh, he belts Daniels, and I didn't have it. So we, I, I couldn't find that. That was a bummer. But uh, anyway, it's just going back through all the old footage from that and old stuff of Mickey Redmond, my 23-year broadcast partner, when he was 22 years old, interviewed by Ted Darling and Dave Hodge mm. on a Hockey Night in Canada, posting that old stuff of Harold Ballard and John Brophy going nuts at practice and, and Ballard just being nuts, period, when he was the owner of the Maple Leafs. So I've taken the stuff off CBC television, put it onto my phone, had the Red Wings help me with it, and just posting on Instagram at Ken Daniels TV. So... If you want to see some old stuff, go there. It's been it's been fun for me, and it's got me to reminisce. Where normally the summertime, I'm just out, but mm-hmm. a few months, you know, March, April, May, it just got me to do stuff that I wouldn't have done. So it's been cool that way. That's awesome. Now you grew up in Toronto. What was what was life like there? Was it hockey or bust for you being a Toronto kid? Yeah, and I was the youngest of four, hmm. and the next oldest to me is seven years older. So basically, I grew up an only child. Uh, I was 11 when my sister got married and out of the house. So I had to find things to entertain myself. And I think I would wind up doing play-by-play, just like some other guests that you've had. We've just known from an early age. And my siblings, when they were around, and we'd watch Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday night, and I was 8 or 9 or 10 years old, and I was born in 59. So growing up in Toronto, the Maple Leafs Stanley Cup happened, the last one, when I was 8 mm-hmm. in 1967. So I would probably do some play-by-play, as my elders tell me, uh, in the den, watching on television uh, to the game. And they'd send me to bed probably by the end of the second period. Maybe I was mistaking Kelly for Keon and got the numbers messed up, and they're going, you're screwing up. But anyway, they'd send me to bed, and I I had my little toodaloop yellow Panasonic radio, which I still have to this day, and I'd stick it under my pillow, and I'd listen to uh, Foster Hewitt, uh, called the third period of the game, or if uh, the uh, St. Louis Blues were playing somewhere, maybe on the West Coast, I'd get to KMOX eleven twenty and listen to my favorite all time, Dan Kelly, mm. who was just perfect. That inflection in his voice, and I, I, so I'd fall asleep probably listening to Dan Kelly. So I say I, I literally dreamed my job mm. by osmosis. Some of that sunk in. I dreamt of being in Maple Leaf Gardens being down there by the dressing room, seeing the players from Dave Keon to Bruce Gamble, uh, the old goalie and all the rest of them that I just love. 
growing up. So hockey, and then I didn't really start playing hockey until I was probably nine or 10. Mm -hmm. And I didn't take lessons. And the first week out there, I was falling all over the place. The second week out there, I just took to it. And I remember my peers saying, boy, you, 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 would you take lessons? Hmm. And I said, no, I just, you know, I, I caught on. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty much hockey all the time because the Blue Jays weren't around until 77. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have, we had the Argos, so we had the CFL. We didn't have the NFL in Toronto. So it was all Maple Leafs all the time for me as a kid. And you mentioned Foster Hewitt and Dan Kelly. Were those some of your biggest influences? Were there any others in the broadcasting industry? Yeah, I'd say Dan Kelly, number one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd listen to Bill Hewitt because after, you know, Foster was doing radio and Bill took over when we got Maple Leaf games and, and the odd time when the Maple Leafs and the Toronto market were not on. And then you'd get Danny Gallivan out mm-hmm. of Montreal. So I would say for me, it would be Dan Kelly, number one, Bill Hewitt. Um, I, I just, and sometimes it was funny. Years ago, I'd lapse into a Bill Hewitt impression just to try to make Mickey laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, remember the guy named Matty Ellis, mm-hmm. right? And there was uh, Armstrong, I think, may have been playing for Los Angeles at the time. So I'm in Detroit, and I'm trying to think of his first name now. Armstrong, the player, Matt Ellis was playing. Col- uh, yeah. I'm trying to remember his name, but anyway, the puck would go into the corner. Now, this is, you know, early 2000s. The puck would go into the corner, and I just lapse into... Puck goes into the corner. There's Armstrong hit by Ellis right in the middle of the game, sort of like a Bill Hewitt impression. Uh-huh. And I would, Mickey would just take his headset off and he'd bust out laughing because <laughs> he knew exactly when I went Armstrong to Ellis. It was just like the old days for Bill Hewitt. So I, I grew up more than anyone probably listening listening to Bill and Dan Kelly. Dan was my, my all-time favorite for sure. And then, as I mentioned in the open, you played high school hockey for Mike Keenan. Was he Iron Mike then, or was he a different person? Uh, he was a different person because he would have been probably mid to late 20s, mm-hmm. or 17 or 18, so it wasn't crazy. He wasn't that much older, and we'd hang out with him. Not only was Mike coaching us at Forest Hill Collegiate in Toronto, and when you, you think about it, I went to Forest Hill Collegiate, Lorne Michaels, hmm. Saturday Night Live, yep. to Forest Hill Collegiate, Drake went to Forest Hill Collegiate. Mike Keenan went to Forest Hill Collegiate. That's pretty good. Yeah. And others who still have their show in Toronto, Steve Pakin, who does the agenda on TV Ontario, and a great political reporter went there, Ralph Benberge, who had his own show on CBC television. They all went to Forest Hill Collegiate. Um, so pretty crazy cast of characters. Michael Landsberg, long time mm. at TSN in yeah. Canada, went to Forest Hill Collegiate. So I don't know what it was, but we were all there. So Mike, he was uh, a phys ed teacher, a history teacher, uh, and I used to sit in his phys ed office, gym class, and we'd go in there and talk. He knew I wanted to be in broadcasting, and he wanted to coach in the National Hockey League. And he'd always say, Daniels, any jobs available? You know? <laughs> and we'd just shoot the breeze about jobs or what I wanted to do. And when he would coach us, and our team, i got to tell you, Forest Hill Collegiate as a hockey program sucked, just like their football <laughs> program and everything else. It was horrible. Mike took us to the city semifinals wow. in the year that I played for him, and he had a playbook for us. He used to copy the playbook from the Philadelphia Flyers, where he'd ultimately go to for his first NHL coaching job, and he'd take stuff from Ray Shiro. And he'd give us as a team a playbook. So he was coaching, not only coaching us, and we'd have early morning practices because at Forest Hill Collegiate, there would be an arena right across the street, Forest Hill Arena, where I wound up, you know, I was playing uh, house league hockey. 
and all-star hockey and then went on to play for the high school team albeit a fourth liner and a penalty killer there are players a whole lot better than me at, at five foot seven so Mike would have us practice in the morning early. We'd have to run. If you didn't beat your time by a mile, you probably weren't playing. So he'd have us running a couple of days a week, and he'd have us practicing in the morning. And then you went to class. Hmm. After school, when we'd have games, Mike would coach us, and then often he'd head out to Oshawa or to Whitby. He was player coach for the Whitby Senior Warriors. And Hmm. I don't know if you remember, Steve, a guy by the name of Tom Shotgun Simpson. I don't. He was he was Toronto's first 50 goal scorer hmm. before Rick Vive and the rest. Tom Shotgun Simpson played for the Toronto Torps. He was one of my heroes growing up. Love Shotgun Simpson. Had this huge curve on his stick, number 12 for the Toronto Toros. I absolutely loved him. Mike coached the Whitby Senior A Warriors, player coach. Tom Simpson was on that team. Eddie Shack played for that hmm. team. And when he wasn't doing that, he was coaching the Oshawa Junior B Legionnaires. And because I was close enough with him, he took me out to play in a preseason game because you could sort of like an intramural practice with his hockey team. Mm -hmm. And I was going to get killed. Players were running me. And I came back to the bench and Mike said, I told you, Daniels, you're going to get fucking killed. (laughs) I was a little guy. And, you know, you just knew. But he wanted to show me the difference between where we were in high school and where they were even at a junior B level, right? Mm -hmm. So he knew. And then he ultimately... That was uh, that's what he wanted to do, and then I think when he got the job in Philadelphia, and for Bobby Clark and for the Snyder family, I think he went down to Florida and for days on end wrote a I don't know what it was a thirty page or hundred page thesis on what it is to coach in the National Hockey League just to get hmm. the job. So I'd like to say yeah, it began sort of at Forest Hill Collegiate while he had two other coaching jobs at the same time, and then when he wound up coaching in Rochester. For Scotty Bowman, a bunch of us went down to see him coach in Rochester. I mean, how many guys go down to watch the coach, right? right? But we're sitting right behind the bench. Probably, you know, he helped us on some grades probably in high school, so we figured it was a bit of a payback. <laughs> we went back to watch him coach, and after the game we see him, and he looked at us like three or four times during the game, not necessarily acknowledging, but looked at us. And after the game he said, where were you sitting? And we said, you're full of shit. What do you mean you didn't know where you're sitting? We're right behind you. Look at us. But that was, that was Mike, just in his own world and just in that trance and in the coaching mode. And, you know, even when we got to the NHL, I heard stories about him. And, and Brett Hall, when he came to Detroit, couldn't believe that I was friends with him. Hated Mike Keenan. Hated him. But I know recently he was on a podcast with Mike, so I, I think all is good now and they made up. But, uh, you know, there's many who hated him. Many who loved him, I've heard stories about him. I confronted him stories about him that he, that he had. I know he's got a book coming out soon with Jay Greenberg. Um, it'll be an interesting read. I didn't agree with all he did, but uh, when he was in high school, we loved the time with him. Great guy. Every student in that school loved him. He wasn't Iron Mike. He was a lot of fun, but even as a high school teacher, you wanted to do well for him, and you didn't want to screw up because if you did, you weren't going to practice. Actually, I'll tell you one more story. A guy mm-hmm. by the name, and it's in, it's in my book, if these walls could talk. Danny Gelman, it was an early morning practice. It was a Monday morning, maybe 7.30. Danny had had a rough weekend drinking. So we, we go out, and we're practicing, and Mike decided to take the, the practice off, and he'd sit up in the stands just to watch. And Danny was pretty much throwing up the entire time. And he, he as soon as practice started, he, he laid down by the – the close board so Mike couldn't see him or so he thought we had practice going everybody's filing off the ice Mike comes down to the door where everyone's leaving he stops Danny goes Gelman 
since you didn't skate for the last 45, have fun for the next half hour. Go. <laughs> and he made him do lap after lap after lap. And the rest of us just stood there laughing our ass off because he thought he'd pull one past him, but uh, he, he didn't. So we, we loved playing for Mike back then. We really did. Did you guys ever in an NHL coaching office sit down and look, kind of look at each other and say, wow, we both made it? Oh, many times. Yeah. Oh, many times. Yeah. And actually, when he was coaching the Flyers, um, and it would have been the uh, mid-'80s, and I was in radio and just getting into CBC television, and he would play, bring Nick and the Nice Guys down for what was called the Flyer Fling back then um, with the group that uh, he had started back from St. Lawrence University, if I remember the story correctly. And I had them, and I came down and stayed with Mike and, uh, and, and his wife, uh, his first wife at the time. So I went down and stayed with him in Philadelphia and just to get up close. And I remember him, uh, you know, introducing me to Bernie Perron, hmm. who was my idol then. And, and Bernie came down. And uh, one of the, I remember one of the Snyder daughters who was with Kenny Linsman at the time and came down, or she had called down to the office, and Mike said, uh, it may have been, was it Cindy Snyder, if I remember, uh, came down to the office, and Mike said, by the way, don't ask her about the tattoo. <laughs> and I said, okay. So she comes down to the office, she leaves, and I go, I noticed it was, what, what was that? And she said, uh, it was a rat. Hmm. <laughs> for Kenny Linsman. Yeah. So, you know, don't ask her about that. So I said, okay, I, and I didn't. So I got to meet folks. Yeah, we talked many times, and right after, you know, the Rangers. So the New York Rangers missed the playoffs, right, in 93. Right. So 94, uh, I got the New York Rangers, and I'm talking to Mike before the season starts, and he gets the job in New York and amidst controversy, and there's always controversy around Mike, right? So... He gets the job in New York, and I was looking at the Vegas odds, and the New York Rangers were 18 to 1 hmm. to win the Stanley Cup. And I talked to Mike, and Mike just said, Daniels, as he used to say, like he'd always call out the, the centerman's name on whatever line it was. You know, Daniels, take your line. Simon, take your line. That's what he'd always say. So, Daniels, whenever I call Mike and he'd answer the phone, he goes, Daniels, take your line. <laughs> so, when I asked him about the, the Rangers uh, that season, how are you guys going to do? And he says, Daniels, don't ever bet against me. You know that. Hmm. So sure enough, I bet on the New York Rangers to win the Stanley Cup at 18 to 1. So I'm standing at the time, I think, to win 2800 bucks hmm. on the New York Rangers to win the Cup. Now it's game seven, right. 94. And my financial guy calls me, and he knows the bet. And he said, you know, I can get you a puck and a half on Vancouver. And I said, well, I can't bet on Vancouver. He said, no, no, no. You're just hedging your bet. Right. You've already got it with the Rangers, but why not get a puck and a half? When that net was empty and the <laughs> difference is just one goal, you have no idea how I was cheering <laughs> that the Rangers wouldn't let that goal in. Anyway, I won both ways because I had Vancouver for 1,000 in the final game uh, on that one I, on a, with a puck and a half on the Canucks and won the Rangers to win the Stanley Cup. It's so not that often, was pretty good. It's not often yeah. you can hedge and win both. No, not off. Not often you could do that. So, so that was pretty good. So, in part, I think thank Mike for that too. So, that was a pretty good night. Yeah. And then you were at a young age. You began officiating, and you know, help pay your way for college. Did you have a different appreciation for the game officiating? A hundred percent. Yeah, I, 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 I did, and I repped in the MTHL, which is now the Greater Toronto Hockey League. It used to be called the Metro Toronto Hockey League, but I was out there. My goodness, I mean, I started at Forest Hill Arena. 
just refereeing when I was 13 or 14 and refereeing mm-hmm. the kids who were Adams or Tykes, right? Six, seven year olds, to a two man system, whatever. But it just got me out there on the ice skating. And I still have the book of the salaries I made for each game. Mm-hmm. And as it went on and through high school, I was making three to four thousand dollars a year in the 70s, just cash. Mm-hmm. I mean, I bought my first car. So I had a great appreciation, but I loved doing it. I loved doing if it was 15 games on a weekend on a Saturday and Sunday and going to Chesswood Arena in Toronto that had four rinks and you go rink to rink, you'd be freezing your ass off. But it got me out of the house. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I had siblings who were so much older. Mm -hmm. It was basically just me and my buddies and they were off playing hockey and they were better than me at the game. So they went on to a higher level of play. And so for me, it was refereeing and I wasn't the best ref wasn't that big so but I was an okay skater pretty good so uh, yeah it gave me a great appreciation of the game and every night of the week it got me out of the house my parents were kind enough before I got my own car to let me have their car so I'd be driving to so many different arenas around the the city just on my own I would get my homework done and uh, you know even after high school hockey some games we play at four o'clock at home at six and I have games at seven Hmm. or I'd Actually, some at Ted Reeves Arena, we'd have a game there, and I'd just stay there, and I'd referee the night. So it was just great cash, and I I do have an affinity for the refs, because even when I was working at, at CBC, and the guys that I would connect with over the years, and even now to, to talk to Wes McCauley and Dan O'Halloran, and I'll go down to the to the referee's room before the game, and uh, they're just wonderful people. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it saddens me some nights, in a, in a funny way, when Mickey's all over them. And Mickey knows my affection for the refs. <laughs> and Mickey always says, I'm not, I'm not going at the refs. you got to understand, I'm going at New York. I'm going at, at the powers that be in the game. These rules shouldn't be the way they are. And I go, I know. But the refs, I'll go down the room before the game, and they'll go, tell Mickey to be nice to us tonight. And I try, but I have no control over him. So <laughs> I try to see it, and sometimes I get caught up in it. And, uh, you know, I think Stephen Walkham came to a, to a broadcast meeting a number of years ago, and he's still there, and we, we have the broadcast meetings in New York mm-hmm. when, when we get there, normally in New York, uh, just so all the media can get together and hear what's going on. And Stephen Walken came into the meeting and he said, I want all you guys to understand, as a referee, we never walked into a building to start the night and said, let's see how we can fuck this one up tonight. <laughs> and I said, right, you didn't. And I sort of try to keep that thought in the back of the mind. They're only human. And I know, as you said, he, even talking to Mike about careers and get on the refs, and, and he, he felt the same way about that. So you get it caught up in the heat of the moment, but you know they're just human, and it's a, it's a tough job. I don't know how those guys ever did it, the one-man system. Right. And honestly today, and I know some rebelled, they didn't like the two-man system, but boy, you couldn't work into your 50s now. Right. You know, when Bill McCurry did, now Dan O'Halloran, who's you know, now retired, and you just couldn't go that long without it. You need it. The game's just too fast today. And then when you were doing the youth games, were there any kids that you saw that were unbelievable that later became pros that you remember? You know what? I wish I knew, yeah. but no, yeah. I don't. And there were so many. Yeah, when you had the uh, the Toronto Young Nats and teams like that, right. just so good And some of these players. I remember this one kid who was maybe 13 years old and he had a friggin' mustache. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you're 13, man? Come on. I had my porno mustache back then when I was refereeing, and you would want better than me. You couldn't be 13. But anyway, he was damn good. Yeah, we had some great players. Uh, I really wish I, I knew, but I, I don't remember some of the names back then. Gotcha. I just don't. And then upon graduation from York University in Toronto, you got a job doing news and sports for a radio station in Oshawa. 
what did you learn from that first experience in the real world? I learned that if you stay up on a Friday night and you have to be in Oshawa on a Saturday morning at 4.30 to do the news on air from 6 till noon, you better not drink too much the night before. You're going to fall asleep on the highway <laughs> coming back at 12.30. <laughs> it was a 45-minute drive from where I lived, and I was very careful because you'd be just exhausted. <laughs> but it was great because I learned the political beat. Uh, I learned how to do everything. You learned how to, back then they had the old reel-to-reel tapes. You learned how to splice tape. And I, um, what was the old the old show, The People's Court? Right. And I'm trying to remember the main producer was Stu Billet. I think it was Stu Billet Productions. My first ever interview for 94.7, I think it was CKQT in Oshawa, mm-hmm. was with Stu Billet. Mm-hmm. And they had an hour uh, public affairs show and it was when the people's court was coming out and I did the interview with Stu Billet and back in the day how old are you Steve 42 okay well you're a lot younger but it's probably before your time but back in the day we had splicing tape right mm-hmm. so you tape the interview together you'd cut it with razor blades and a little gadget there and you tape it together with splicing tape and put it back on the reel to reel so it all sound okay you take out a part that didn't sound good. Mm-hmm. And I remember my first big interview in Stu Billet Productions, the creator of People's Court. This is going to be great, great stories, how they're going to work this. And I leave it, and on air, the tape breaks. So I get in the next day, and there's two reel-to-reels over my desk there, a little cubicle I had in the newsroom out in Oshawa. And there's a knot right in the middle of the tape tied together with a knot and it said Ken Daniels splicing techniques. (laughs) So I guess I didn't do too well. So I learned how to splice tape. I learned how to do interviews. Um, I I think as an early age growing up, I, I, again, whether it be listening to Foster Hewitt or Bill Hewitt or Dan Kelly and falling asleep and listening to the great Dave Hodge from hockey night in Canada. And he was on the world tonight on CFRB back in the days and, in the late 60s, early 70s, when you didn't have scores on a phone and you had to wait to get the score from somewhere, and he'd give it to you. So I guess I took a little bit from everybody and put that into my radio days in 1980 in Oshawa, and then they'd have me cover the political beat. Hmm. out did you know, the small towns in Pickering and Whitby, all around Oshawa, 45 minutes outside Toronto. I'd sit in on city council meetings, and you'd listen to the meetings and try to get on the agenda what was the big story. I didn't really know. But I talked to enough people, asked questions. My dad said there's no such thing as a stupid question. Only stupid people don't (laughs) ask questions. So I always asked. That was great advice from my dad. Um, So I always asked questions, and I go back to the newsroom that night. So besides morning radio, news, and sports, uh, in the morning on Saturdays and Sundays, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, I'd cover city council meetings. And I'd Mm. leave tape, get out of there at maybe 1 in the morning, leave tape for the morning guys. After I learned how to spice, splice it, leave clips uh, with little stories around it. And uh, I, I think what I learned best then was versatility. Because from there, when I went to Toronto and wound up doing overnight news and sports, when they needed a sports guy or a fill-in guy, hey, Ken can do sports. Hey, Ken can do City Hall. Ken can do the political beat in the Ontario legislature. Right. So I think versatility in the business and radio, what a great training background for television Mm -hmm. and the jobs were available then that maybe aren't now where you could work overnights you could make mistakes you could mess up and really no one would hear you now those jobs are sort of gone so now i tell kids try podcasting right Right? which what you're doing try that try to just get your voice heard whatever form it could be 
we were fortunate back then to have that opportunity if you could sell yourself. And mm-hmm. That's what I did. I just sold myself to get every job I ever had. Try to fool them. Don't <laughs> let them catch you. You know, <laughs> still trying. <laughs> and then in 1985, you get on air with CBC. How big of a moment was that for you? Oh, it was huge. And it, again, this was the, the radio training background. I had tried to get in for TV interviews with CBC Television. It was CBLT in Toronto, CB Local Television. So it was Channel 5 in Toronto, Cable 6. And I tried to get in there. And the story goes that I was working for the radio station, which had the Blue Jay rights. Mm-hmm. And I had a media pass. And I, I'm at home in the early 80s. So I'd be in my you know early to mid-20s then. And um, I, I was hungry. And, you know, back then in those days as a bachelor, you had Twinkies. <laughs> and I don't know what else was in your fridge, but there, there wasn't much. Right. I had my own apartment, and it's a Friday night, and I had no date. So I don't know what that tells you. It must have been the bad mustache. <laughs> so I'm at home thinking, I'm really hungry. I think I'll go down to the Blue Jays game and get dinner. In the okay. press room. In the press room, the press sure. Room. Yeah. So I go down, and I run into Don Martin who was with local CBC television and doing some network sports um, behind a guy named Brian Williams, the Canadian Brian Williams, mm-hmm. the Dean of Sportscasters in Canada, whom I wrote a letter to at the age of 17, wanting to talk about careers in journalism. And Brian wrote me back, called me, and I would go down every few months and just watch Brian do the sports at CBC television. Mm-hmm. So now I'm around 25, 26. I have some radio experience. I go down for dinner at the Blue Jays game. I run into Don Martin, and it's uh, probably mid-June of that year, it may have been 84, 85. And I said to Don, I uh, just met him. And no, Don came up to me. He maybe met him once before. And he said, Ken, you know, there's an opening. I'm going off for the Canada Summer Games for CBC Network. They're looking for a summer replacement fill-in on weekends at CBC Television. Mm-hmm. And I said, Don, I've called Howard Bernstein, the executive producer, a few times. I never get a return call. He said, call him on Monday. He'll return your call. Call on Monday. Howard answers the phone. And Don didn't even say anything to him. And I tell Howard, I was, you know, CJCL radio. It was the music of your life then before it became the fan. And I, I, you know, I'd love to come in for an audition. He said, okay, you got it. So I go in, audition with another guy who'd come in from Montreal. We did the weekends. My, so we audition and uh, I get the job. So about two weeks later now, I'm on air. And it's 2.30 in the morning is my first ever sports cast on television because it ran after the CFL game had finished from the West Coast. So back then, no matter how late it was, you did the news and you did the news live. So 2 o'clock, the news starts. By the time they come to me, it's 2.20 in the morning. I'm as nervous as I can be in this little studio all by myself with a teleprompter in the camera. In the script, I'd written a script, right? You need enough time to fill. Mm-hmm. So I'm throwing to the Argo highlights. I'm throwing to Blue Jay highlights. I've done all that, all of it pre-taped, so I don't have to do any of it live. Out of one of the taped items, if we needed more time toward the end of the show, I had written the words ad-lib, hmm. just in case you needed to fill more time. Right. We, we come out of the tape piece. I look up a teleprompter, and I went, ad-libbing now? <laughs> <laughs> On the air. Right. <laughs> On the air. Now, I'm devastated right now. I keep going. I fill. I throw back to the news person. My first show, I figure I got through it. But that drive home, I was devastated. But I go, it's 2.30 in the morning. Who the hell's going to see it? One of my friend's stoner brothers was still up at 2.30 in the morning. 
and calls me the next day and goes, oh, my God, that was hilarious when you said ad-libbing now. <laughs> anyway, that was my worst moment in my first moment ever on television. I don't think it's ever been as bad as that moment since. So when you start out that poorly, you've got nowhere to go but up. That's your Ron so, Burgundy moment. That's my, that's, yeah, stay classy, Toronto. Yeah, I had the Ron Burgundy stash and everything. So, yeah, that was my Ron Burgundy moment long before Ron Burgundy. So, yeah, that was horrible. But, you know, I wound up getting the job. And uh, um, months later, they hired me full time after the weekend fill in. And I get the job basically replacing Brian Williams now, who'd gone full time to national sports. So he leaves local TV. I'm now taking Brian Williams' spot, the guy who I wrote a letter to some eight years earlier to see what I could do in the world of broadcasting. And in his office, I'm sharing it with the weatherman, Bill Lawrence, who did a show in Canada, and for Canadian listeners, they may know, he did a show called Tiny Talent Time, which is really the precursor to America's Got Talent and everything else hmm. these days, right? So Bill Lawrence hosted that, and he did the weather. The world's nicest man you could ever meet. And what a legend in broadcasting. And I answer the phone one day in the sports office, and Bill Lawrence is getting ready for the weather, and he's sitting there, and I answer the phone, and I'm talking to this kid. And I said, do me a favor, call me next month, you know, and I'll try to help you out. You can come down and watch me do the sports. And I hang up the phone, and Bill Lawrence said, you know what, Kenny? You did right there what Brian Williams always did. Kids used to phone Brian Williams all the time and ask to come down, see about careers in journalism. You did what he did. And I said, Bill, I was that kid who was bugging Brian Williams every two months to come down. If I'm not paying it forward, what type of person am I? Right. So we did. I used to have kids come down and watch me all the time just just to see if they wanted to get into broadcasting. So for Brian Williams, who took that chance on me, just a kid to give me hope. He couldn't give me a job, but he gave me hope. And then, you know, I have no food at home. So I go down to the Blue Jay game and I get the job, which is why whenever I go speak to groups, I always say there's no such thing as luck. Luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Hmm. So was I lucky to go down to run into Don Martin? Was I lucky I had no food at home? I guess so. But when Don said, Ken, there's a TV job available, if my preparation of five or six years of getting better and better and better after it was horrible on radio from Oshawa to overnights in Toronto, to covering the political beat, if all that preparation wasn't there, when that opportunity arose that Don said, he'll take your call Monday morning, I wouldn't have had the confidence to seize that opportunity that was available. Right. And they wouldn't have hired me if I wasn't, didn't have the confidence to sell myself again that I could do it. So to me, I always say, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. No matter what stage anybody's at in their life, if you prepare, if you dream it, if you visualize it, when that opportunity arises, right place, right time, for sure. But when the opportunity is there, you got to seize it and have the confidence to seize it. And everything you've done will allow you to do it. Exactly. Well said. If you, if luck is uh, can only go so far if you're not prepared. Right. Hundred yep. percent. Is it is it true that you almost passed on your first chance to do hockey play by play because you were moving? <laughs> that is very true. You do your research. Yes, very true. Uh, it would have been, I was working at uh, the radio station at uh, CJCL, and I believe it was just before it became the fan, Canada's first all-sports radio station. And again, one of the guys who I do some overnight shifts with, and he was spinning tunes back in the music of your life days, Alan Davis. 
Alan was now the executive producer of the radio station, turning it over to become All Sports Radio with the fan. And again, this is what I spoke of, of versatility, whether it be politics or news or sports, Ken can do this. So Joe Bowen was the Leafs radio play-by-play guy from the early 80s. Now you're looking at 1989-90 season. And I just got back, or 88, I think it was 88-89, got back from the uh, Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea for CBC Television. And I wasn't great at it. And Alan Davis, who again was such a mentor for me, and when I came back from those Summer Olympics, Alan said to me, he said, you know, Ken, you called the road racing for, um, you know, bicycles, right? I did the velodrome. I did canoeing and kayaking. Alan said, when you called it, you started so high, you were at such a level, you had nowhere to go. Hmm. You'd already hit your ceiling. Where was your inflection? You couldn't bring it anywhere. And he went over tapes with me and sat there, granted on VHS tapes, right, after the eight Olympics, and he'd sit at home because he was with the radio station. And he said you had nowhere to go. And really, that was my first foray into play-by-play. I'd always wanted to host Hockey Night in Canada, but hadn't done that yet. That was really my goal. So my first play-by-play was cycling and canoeing and kayaking and a little bit of baseball. So Alan gave me those tips, and I said, okay, I'm going to work on that. And then all of a sudden, Joe Bowen was doing, moved over to television for that night to do a game. Paul Romanek was supposed to do radio. Hmm. And Alan calls me the night before the game. And he says, Ken, Romanek can't do the game tomorrow night. Maple Leafs, Boston, Maple Leaf Gardens. Now, remember, I've never called a hockey game in my life. Alan said, I need you to call the game tomorrow night at Maple Leaf Gardens, Toronto, Boston. I said, Alan, I just bought a house. Hmm. I can't. I'm moving tomorrow. And Alan's words to me were, quote, get someone else to move the fucking ottoman. (laughs) You're calling the hockey game. And I said, let me get right back to you. So I called some buddies, and I wasn't married at the time, and they helped me move. And sure enough, I called the game. And the game went to overtime. Uh, Andy Brickley wound up getting the assist. Boston, Mm. Boston won the hockey game. And as I'm calling the game, I'm trying to think, going, the last thing I need is overtime. And I never listened to that game until I got the job in Detroit some eight years later in 97. Never listened to it again. I thought, you know what? I'm going to put in the cassette tape. And I listened to it. I said, for a first game, it really wasn't too bad. Hmm. So, you know, it was it was a – I never did minor leagues, never did junior hockey, never rode the bus. I guess that's fortunate. I didn't have that reps except – that I had done so much radio, I had done so much television, you know, right. and just live event remote, remotes and everything else I'd done. And the next year, they asked me to fill in for Joe 15 games, and the next year, 15 games, and ultimately led from radio to, to Hockey Night in Canada when John Shannon came back to run Hockey Night. Hmm. And then, 97, 98, you get offered the job to be the voice of the Red Wings. How difficult of a decision was that to leave CBC and, and then move to another country? Yeah, it was very difficult. And uh, when I mentioned John Shannon and doing Leaf games, filling in for Joe, maybe 15 or 20 games a game a year on radio during the early 90s, along that trail, I met John Shannon, who was producing Minnesota North Star games. Uh, and Dave Hodge was doing play-by-play mm-hmm. back then. So I'd meet John after games and teams didn't fly out right after. So the Maple Leafs would stay and I'd go out. John met me a couple of times. So when John came to Hockey Night in Canada... Uh, back in the, I think, maybe 94 season or so. I know it was a lockout, but right around then, and he said, Ken, I hear you're applying for some radio jobs. 
uh, I'm coming to Hockey Night in Canada as executive producer. I'd like to give you a shot moving it from radio to TV play-by-play. And I said, seriously, because I've been hosting Hockey Night, but not play-by-play on Hockey Night. And he said, yeah, but you got to leave radio because you got too many damn bad habits, meaning too descriptive on television. Mm -hmm. He didn't want me doing radio and TV. And I said, okay. And at that point, the radio station had lost the Leaf radio rights anyway, so it didn't matter to me. It was perfect. So John brought me to Hockey Night. So sure enough, years later, uh, I had applied for the uh, the the uh, radio the TV job in Detroit. And if you have a moment, I'll tell you the story how that happened. Absolutely. Because John had me in TV play by play. So it's uh, 96, 97 Stanley Cup playoffs, and John put me on that series of Ottawa Buffalo, which went to Game Seven that Buffalo won first round series, and he gave me Mark Askin. Mm. as the producer. Yeah. Mark was the best at Hockey Night Canada. Great producer, Jim Marshall, director. Oh, my God. And I said to John after, I said, how did we end up with Mark Askin? And he said, so you wouldn't fuck it up. <laughs> so we did the series, goes to game seven, great. He puts me on the second round series, now Buffalo, Philadelphia. And we're in Buffalo and uh, at the new building. And uh, Dave Strader, the late, great, love him, Dave Strader, mm-hmm. walked into the booth and said, by the way, Ken, I wanted to tell you, Mickey Redman, whom he was doing ESPN International for mm-hmm. in the second round series, series. so Mickey came over from Detroit. He was doing second round ESPN International with Dave. He said, Mickey wants me to let you know, uh, this was May of 97, that they're uh, letting the guy go in Detroit. They're going to make a change there. I said, okay. There was, I didn't have my cell phone with me, and to this day, there was still a telephone booth outside the broadcast area in Buffalo's building, whatever the hell it's called now. It's changed the name so many times. What is the latest? It, it might be, it's not HSBC anymore. I don't even know yeah. what it is. Whatever the hell it is now. So it's changed names so many times. So right outside there, there's a telephone booth. And Mickey and I actually a couple of years ago took a picture of it. I called my agent, Maury Gossfran in New York. Uh, and I called him. I said, can you get a tape together for Detroit. He mm-hmm. said, sure thing, no problem. So he gets the tape together. I go interview with the Red Wings in June. They ask me what I'd want. I tell them in terms of years, whatever. Now, fat, now you've got the, that summer, you've got that tragic limo accident of Vladimir Manatsakan, Vladimir Manatsakan, Sergei Manatsakanov, and Vladimir Konstantinov. So I'm seeing it on TV in Toronto that night that happened. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, the last thing, this is the last thing the Red Wings are thinking about is hiring a broadcaster after this. And I didn't blame them. So I didn't hear a thing for months and I knew I wouldn't. So John and I go for dinner early September now, and I hadn't heard from the Red Wings. A couple of phone calls, but they hadn't made a decision yet because they got other stuff to worry about mm-hmm. after all that and coming off a Stanley Cup win, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I go out with John Shannon. John agrees to give me a three-year contract extension with Hockey Night in Canada Mm. and more games. And I said, that's awesome. I go home. The next day, the Red Wings call me. Mm. So I'm on the phone sitting on my front porch that afternoon, and I call John Shannon, and I tell the Red Wings no. I tell them no because the deal wasn't really in terms of years of service. I'm going. It wasn't so much the money, a little bit, but, you know, I was still with CBC – I'd been let go from CBC Local, but I was still with CBC Network. CBC Local was cutting back, and I was gone from there. So I wasn't doing local CBC sports anymore. They were cutting back, but I still had the national sports and Hockey Night in Canada. So uh, I I get a call. I tell the Red Wings no. Then they call me back, and they say, we gave you what you wanted. 
Now, remember when I say opportunity and the folks who had gone from CBC television had gone out to Los Angeles now to move over for Fox Sports, including Arthur Smith, Hmm. who was my executive producer of the Olympics with CBC. He's now running Fox Sports. I get a call from Arthur Smith. Do you know how hard we got you to work here and you turned down the job? Are you kidding me? So I told Arthur why. Arthur hangs up the phone. He calls back, and within 20 minutes, he calls me back and says, you got what you wanted. Hmm. Now I've got to call John Shannon. Greg Millen, who was my broadcast partner for that series, Ottawa and Buffalo and Philadelphia and Buffalo after in the second round, he's there with John. And I call John and I tell him the story. And I'm in tears because, you know, you got two young children. What are you going to do? And John says to me, Kenny, you got to go. And I said, you serious? He said, yes. He goes, right now you're third guy because there's still Bob Cole, right? Right. There's still Jim Houston and Chris Cuthbert, inexplicably, they they had let go from CBC, which was crazy at the time. But I can't give you that many games, so you're going to get more. But the only way you're going to get better is to call 80 games a year. He goes, I'll handle Alan Clark, the executive producer. Alan was pissed because we just agreed to a deal. But he said, you got to go. And I thank him to this day for that. Hmm. And John and I, John's the greatest producer to see the game, the vision he's got, unbelievable, and been a mentor to so many in the industry, back to John Davidson mm-hmm. and beyond, and Ron McLean, and gave him the start, and everyone else, and working with Dave Hodge, everybody. John Shannon has touched somehow in this industry, including me, giving him a chance on TV. And that's really how I came to Detroit. Hmm. John said, you got to go. And he pushed me, and uh, I've had 23 years now, Mickey Redmond and I are the currently the longest serving tv duo together in the national hockey league and uh it's it's been a wonderful time and mickey welcomed you with open arms yes he did i think for me you know coming from cbc where you know if if the bob cole era was basically 80 percent play-by-play and you did 20 percent color analyst you talked on the whistle because it was bob and bob would give you the heisman mm-hmm. and he put your hand up if you interrupted <laughs> as an analyst and, and mickey knows that because he worked with bob but i also knew because when i was hosting hockey night in canada i had worked with don cherry and i had done a month when ron went to the olympics during hockey season i would be the fill-in guy on coach's corner with don cherry and few could say at the time they actually hosted coach's corner with mm-hmm. don you know dave hodge right. ron mclean scott oak me maybe scott russell maybe only a handful of guys right. So I was used to the guy being the star. And when I came to Detroit, I knew Mickey was sort of the Don Cherry, although politically correct, uh, in Detroit. So I knew he was the guy. And I knew I had to change my style where it was maybe 70-30 with Hockey Night, play-by-play to analyst. I knew for Mickey it might be 50-50, right? Mickey liked to jump in. So I think the first couple of months with Mickey was maybe a big transition for me, but I knew I had to back off and let him go where he went. And then we just developed over time, maybe took a little bit, just a cadence. I knew to let him go where he had to go. And I wasn't used to guys, you know, I'd say scores and, you know, he'd be talking right over my goal call. I wasn't used to that. You know, the analyst would step out and let it go. But now I sort of love when he does it sometimes. (laughs) It's just his exuberance. It's just his excitement. So what ticked me off maybe the first few months quietly I think I, I just developed with him, and I, I just loved when he did it. And then he adapted to me. I adapted to him. And uh, that's how relationships build, right? It's it's like a marriage. Mm-hmm. I, I talked about it in my book. When, when Mickey walks into the gondola, and he walks in every night, and he'll say, Kenny boy. And it's like he's saying, honey, I'm home. 
and it's like your second, or for me, in my case, would be my third wife. Hmm. Let's hope not that doesn't happen. But at any rate, so, you know, and Mickey's, uh, Mickey's wife and my wife, and they travel together. They've gone to Paris together, and we get together for dinners, even though all his stuff is gluten-free. And as Letterman used to say, I wouldn't give his troubles to a monkey on a rock. Hmm. But he's got lots of them, you know, food allergies and everything else and celiac disease. And, but um, And I heard he even no. travels his own food sometimes on the road. Oh, he's got, it's a Coleman stove hmm. traveling with him. And then you'll hear him bitch when he gets off the plane or the eggs break. <laughs> or the guy, you know, he tells the guy it's fragile and the bussy, the bus driver pulls it off the bus and the eggs have cracked. And Mickey just gets so peeved, but he's got his own fridge in his room. And, you know, I, we were in Columbus one night and I'm in my room. It's afternoon of the game. And I, and you'd always know when Mickey's on your floor because he cooks in his room. <laughs> so you could always smell the garlic. I you know, what that. comes Mickey and just, yeah, just follow the garlic. So I'm in my room one afternoon in Columbus, we're at the Hilton, and I hear the fire alarm going. I go, oh, my God, it must be Redmond. <laughs> I walk down the hall to my left. It had to be about, I don't know, eight rooms down. And I look in, and the door's open, and there's Mickey in his underpants on a chair just fanning, <laughs> fanning the smoke alarm. I'll never forget the image of the maid comes up. I go, don't worry about it. We got this. <laughs> oh, my God. One night we're in. We're, in, we're staying in uh, Santa Monica. We're playing the L.A. Kings, so maybe 1999 or so. Won the uh -huh. Cup in 97, 98. We're in 99. And I'm out at the pool, and we're with Scotty and, and uh, Mickey. And someone came from the hotel. I guess the maid went into Mickey's room, and it was uh, just a disaster. <laughs> because, you know, when he cooked in there and just the, the smell from the food. Although i got to tell you, when you're in there, he cooks up a mean meal. I mean, we'll buy steaks on the road. And, you know, it's like you're at a campfire, right? But he's got his little Coleman stove. He's got the onions. He's got the butter. He's got the steak going. We're cooking shrimp. And we're just having some ginger ales in the room. It's unbelievable. Uh, but anyway, so Mickey's out at the pool with me and Scotty. And we're sitting there relaxing on a day off. And some, the manager comes. And he, I guess someone pointed out who Mr. Redman was. And he comes over. And he's ready to throw Mickey out of the hotel. And Mickey goes in, Jesus Christ, he's running back into the hotel with the manager, wound up being that Mickey had to take the food out of his room, but they let him cook in the kitchen. So that was okay. Uh -huh. So as he, as he leaves the pool, he's running with the manager, going up to his room, not wanting anyone to touch anything. And Scotty just turns to me and goes, boy, his life must suck sometimes. And I go, yeah, <laughs> it sure as hell does. Anyway, so just stories like that along the way with him. It's, it's never... Never a dull moment with Mick, who I affectionately call Jed Clampett, because, as you know, the Beverly Hillbillies, yep. he is Uncle Jed, sometimes just pearls of wisdom where you wouldn't expect them to come from, but they are, and he just makes you laugh. I think I make him laugh, and we're laughing four or five times a night during a game. You couldn't ask for a better broadcast partner. A guy would give that flannel shirt off his back to anybody, and, uh, you know, we roasted him last year in the first celebrity roast we did. We did everything he did. I mean, we, we must have signed. We sold about, we raised about $80,000 of the Ken and Mickey talking bobblehead. Wow. And he must, we must have signed 800 of them, wow. of the 2,500 or so that we sold. And then all the books that I have, and he just signs them. We go over, we'll sit around the campfire and just pass some books and signing them. It's, uh... I could write another book just about him, hmm. and i got to get him to do one one day. I know a lot of people have asked, but, uh, you know, before he forgets all the stories, he's got to start <laughs> writing them down. But, uh, no, wonder, wonderful time. So, again, back to Shannon and me getting the job in Detroit. It's It's been great. It's been yeah. wonderful. And then you get to Detroit, and you've been calling hockey. You've been following hockey. You know the history of the game. 
But did did you have to put any added pressure on yourself to learn the history of the Detroit franchise? I mean, it's an original six team. It's hockey town. You weren't going to be able to fool the fans with the history. Was there some type of pressure to put on yourself there? It's funny you ask that question. No one has ever asked me that before, but it's so true. Because a guy who still does a, a podcast now in Canada, who was a terrific broadcaster, had too many fights with colleagues to make it work for him. But I still think he's great, and he's a, a genius in the sports world, is Mark Hepsher. Hmm. And I remember talking to Mark, who called me when I got the job in Detroit, and he was out of work at the time. We were just talking about where he could maybe go. And I said, you know, I'm a little bit nervous about going to Detroit, just for what you said. Because as much as I had done the hockey, I didn't know the history of the Red Wings. I knew the history of the Maple Leafs. I grew up loving Bobby Orr. I knew the history of the Bruins. I grew up loving Bernie Perron. I knew the history of the Philadelphia Flyers. As much as I had met Gordy Howe, who flattened me at the fantasy camp in the 80s, you know, I didn't follow the Red Wings to that extent or know them. And now you got to know one team inside and out. And that's exactly what I said to Mark. Well, you just asked me, and he said, don't worry about it. You'll be there two weeks. You'll be immersed in it. You're going to training camp. And he said, where's camp? And I said, for the first time ever, Traverse City. And they've been there ever since. Hmm. And he said, see, for the first time, they've never held camp there. So it's new for everybody. You're just going to go and fit in with everyone else. And the first guy I ever met driving down to Detroit, my old Honda Prelude without air conditioning, was I pulled into the Joe Lewis parking lot and out walked Steve Eisenman. Hmm. I'd met Steve a couple of times, just some interviews with CBC, and he was very welcoming at that point. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know Scotty Bowman. But again, they're coming off their, their first cup in, what, the 42 years or so. So it, it had been a while since you know they'd won a Stanley Cup, so everybody was happy and coming in second year, although Sergei Fedorov was in the contract dispute that first year. So I was fitting in and knowing about that story and then meeting Mickey and Kenny Holland was his first year as GM. Mm. He'd been there in the front office, but taking over uh, specifically as general manager was also his first year. And Kenny was so welcoming, and to this day we are just wonderful friends. And we text all the time and have the knowledge that I've been able to gather from Ken Holland and Scotty Bowman and Mike Babcock through the years. My God. And in Toronto days from Pat Burns and Cliff Fletcher and before that, Mike Keenan. So you're right. I had all this hockey knowledge, learning from the greats of the game, and I soaked it up all those years. But learning specifically on one team, Mark was right, though. You're in that environment. You soak it in. And after a while, I just went along. I was reading up on things, but just telling stories, going for drinks with guys. You just learn about it. And you try not to make a mistake. Pronunciations of cities. You have guys in the booth who will give you reads to make, and you're double-checking everything you do. So it was just being extra cautious mm -hmm. and uh, soaking everything in. And this has been heavily talked about, but I wanted to bring it up anyway. I know you've talked about it. During the 2008 final, you were filling in radio voice Ken Cow because of his laryngitis. But under a minute to go, you handed him the headset, told him to finish it off. In a business of a thousand egos, this was a pretty selfless act. Did you know you were going to do it the whole time? <clears throat> yeah, I, I knew uh, that morning and I called a friend because they called me about 1030. Um, and it was game six in Pittsburgh. And the Red Wings could wrap up the Stanley Cup. And I was supposed to do local TV here for the Fox 2 affiliate because, as you know, uh, I think Sam Rosen may have been the last to call, right? A Stanley so. Cup for yes, local. Yes, 1994, yeah, so. yep. Yeah, unbelievable. So um, we didn't get to do that anymore. We were done then after round two, and now we're done after round one locally. I hope we even get to do that down the road. Right. But at any rate, yes, yeah, so it's game six in Pittsburgh. And Ken Cal, love him dearly, and he, I would always refer to him as Schlepprock from the Flintstones. Anything that bad can happen usually happens to him. 
And sure enough, morning of game six, he loses his voice. I get a call from the radio station saying Ken Cal has lost his voice. Well, as soon as I finish the laughter because it's Ken Cal, and then I feel the sadness because I could only imagine the empathy I had for him. Oh, my goodness. But I thought, it still can't be real. Really? You can't call the game? Seriously? So I called a buddy of mine, and he, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm giving the final moments to Callie. So what if he can't talk? I said, he'll talk. I'm not going to tell him, but it's not my domain to call it. I just can't do that. I remember, I think what was in the back of my head was the World Series. It was Jerry Howarth and Tom Cheek on Toronto Blue Jays radio and extras. And it was Jerry Howarth's inning to call it. And he gave it to Tom Cheek. Hmm. The longtime voice had been there before Jerry and Tom Cheek got to call the Blue Jays World Series victory. And love Jerry Howarth. Just retired a few years ago due to voice issues. And I knew, because I was working at the radio station then, I knew when Jerry did that for Tom, and I was in TV at the time, so I knew them both well, I thought, that's a selfless act. So I knew, I think that was in the back of my mind that morning, and funny story is I, I had to get down to Pittsburgh that day, and the Red Wings were flying the family down, family and friends in a charter aircraft, to go to Pittsburgh mm -hmm. that afternoon at 4 o'clock, and the game's at 7.30 or 8, whenever it was. So I knew I'd get there in time to do the radio. So I flew down with the team. Now, the flight was a little bit delayed, so I'm getting a little bit worried here. We get into the igloo, and um, I'm not sure where I'm going because the family splits off, and I got to get up to the broadcast booth, and I hadn't been there in a while. And I run into Colin Campbell, who was with the league at the time. And I run into Colin. I said, how do you get up to the broadcast booth here? I'm in a hmm. hurry. I'm filling in for Ken Cal. And Colin says to me, I'll never forget, he said, I'll take you the back way. I've been a healthy scratch long enough here in Pittsburgh. I know how to get there. <laughs> so he knew exactly how to get up to the press box. So he took me up through concession stands and everything else up the back way, and I get there, and I'm calling the game with Paul Woods. And, and I, the only regret I have from that night is I wished I'd handed it over to Ken with maybe 25 seconds left or so, not 15 or 10 by the time I got to him. Hmm. But uh, I'm arguing with Ken as they called a timeout and Paul Woods is talking. I take my headset off and I tell Ken, and he said, I can't, I've lost my voice. And I go, suck it up. And I'm swearing at him at this point. I've got my mute button on. And I go, and suck it up and call it. He goes, I can't. I said, yes, you can. Put your headset on, suck it up. You're calling it. So sure enough, and the puck goes out to center ice. Pavel Datsuk had been tripped earlier. There should have been a call, but there wasn't. And it goes down, and I said, you know, 15 seconds left. Ken Cal, you know, bring us home for the Stanley Cup. And by now, there's 10 seconds left. But in that 10 seconds, with time running out, the Penguins bring it into the zone, and Marion Hosa, then with Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. just sent it wide of Osgood. I still think it probably wouldn't have counted because time had run out, but it was that close. And Ken Cal, you know, gets his call as they came. And I said to Ken after the game, I said, had Pittsburgh scored to tie up the game, you would have been the biggest schlep-rock moment you've ever had as a jinx in my <laughs> life. But they just missed, and he got to call the Stanley Cup, and I do it all over again, and I think anyone in that situation would. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad he could do that. I was just glad, really, see, to be part of Game 6 that I'll never get to be part of a Stanley Cup final. Right. So to me, even to get, you know, the 59 minutes and 45 seconds of that game was enough for me. And uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful night being able to party with them after the game and come home with the Stanley Cup and, be part of well three of them 90 you know 97 98 and 02 and 08 mm -hmm. just wonderful experiences and the Illich family gracious enough to give us Stanley Cup rings from each of those years just for 
being there. We had nothing to do with it, but be in the right place, right time. So it was uh, wonderful times. And as you said, so much success from the Red Wings throughout your tenure. Right now the team's going through a rebuild and there's plenty of young talent. But you have to do you approach the game differently now to keep viewers engaged as the team's not winning as much? How do you adjust your style? Try to smile more through it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what we do. Remember the game is fun. And I know we have conference calls, you know, day of the game with our Fox Sports Detroit crew, the producers, directors, and all the, the talent um on air to see what we're doing for stories that night and when times get down and you got an 11 game losing streak and a seven game losing streak we had more four game losing streaks this year than i care to remember you know and early in the year we knew we were in a slide and mickey turns to me after a game and says you know or during a game and says boy we're gonna earn our money this year and was right because we haven't had many of those moments the last few years you got used to it mm -hmm. but mickey often on conference calls in the morning will say guys remember the good in the game we got stories to tell in the game Put a smile on our face and remember the good in the game. Mm -hmm. And that's what you got to do. And these guys are trying. The talent's not there. The kids are learning. So you try to pick out the stories for the kids, what they're doing right. They're going to make mistakes without burying them. And obviously we're the home team announcer. And yes, do we root for Detroit? Sure. But one thing I never do, and I don't like when announcers do it, uh, elsewhere, TV, radio, whatever, when the visiting team scores a goal and they just say scores. And there's no excitement there where you could be sitting in the room and you didn't even know they scored. And you rewind the game and you go, holy crap, the visitors scored. You didn't even know they scored. So to me, there's a level of Red Wing excitement. And just a notch below it is the visitor goal. Yeah, there can always be disappointment in your voice when the visitor scores. But still, it's the good of the game. It's the greatness of the game. It's a beautiful goal. Get excited. If Connor McDavid goes end-to-end -end against Detroit, it's a beautiful goal. Mm -hmm. I don't care. How do you not sell that to the best of your ability? It's the game. So I think that's what we try to do all the time on our broadcast. Sometimes it gets hard. The fans are not stupid. Remember, the fans know. And the more that you're just babying it, they're going to know and call you out, and then they don't trust you. So you never want to lose the fans' trust either. You approach every game that way. I approach every game with stories, sometimes too many, and they can get in the way. Sometimes you find just the right mix, and you can tell a story. If I'm excited in the morning, I find a story out about a player, I can tell a story behind the scenes that no one knew or why he switched sticks or this or that mm -hmm. to me that's exciting in a way or how he got to wear a jersey number or grew up loving this guy and you can tell that on a whistle you try to find that good where you'll buy some time that not you're showing every mistake or showing the visitor goal five times over you try to find other stuff so i think that's where the approach changes because mm -hmm. it's not just the game you have to sell the game around it you want to keep the fans interested too do you have a favorite call or game that you've done? Um, well, that uh, I don't know if there's a favorite one. I think, um, well, that one you mentioned, certainly, you know, the Stanley Cup final, to mm -hmm. be a part of that. So to get to a game six, I think there are, are just so many exciting games, or even though the Red Wings didn't win the series, down 3 nothing to, to San Jose and come back, and you tie it up 3-3, three, three and, and you go back, and yeah, you didn't win game seven, but just to get there... There are just certain moments within games. For me, I think anytime Pavel Datsuk hopped over the mm -hmm. boards, which is, uh, you know, uh, my all-time fave, and despite all the rumored stories about him now over there in Russia, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> we'll take that aside, and, and I'll, I'll go with it being not true. So I, I just love Pavel, funny guy, and I think you waited, you know, 
my first year, as I mentioned, Fedorov was in a contract dispute, and Mickey said to me in October, wait till you see Fedorov play. Because I hadn't seen him night in and night out, right? right? As you mentioned, it wasn't in Detroit. And he said, wait till you see Fedorov. And then they, you get spoiled that first year. You see everybody, and you see Fedorov. So I think, though, that O2 season as a compilation was probably the most fun any game because I remember that first game of that O2 season road trip, and you're on Redbird, and you're on that plane, and yeah, you'd seen Fedorov and Eisenman and Lidstrom, right? Shanahan, get on the plane. But now, you got Robitaille, you got Hashik, you got Hull, and you're sitting there, and they all walk by you on the plane. You're going, holy crap, what a group this is. Right. So I think that whole 2 season and, and calling Brett Hull's 700th goal or Eisenman's 600, whatever goal is a milestone marker, I think you remember those moments, mm-hmm. but there were just so many of them or you'll make a call and the player will hear it the next day. Like Pavel Datsuk loved, you know, I coined the phrase the Datsuki and Deke, which really came out of Danny Gallivan, who had this Savardian spinorama for Serge Savard mm. long before it was Denny Savard. But Danny Gallivan uh, originated that because when the Canadians would play in Los Angeles in the days of the infancy days of the LA Kings in the late 60s and early 70s, um, and he'd see everything would be bullorama or thisorama. And with the alliteration, he came up with Savardian spinorama. And when I saw Datsuk Deke, like really, Mario Lemieux may be the greatest one-on-one player I've ever seen. But Pavel Datsuk, the way he could turn players inside out. And I just thought Datsuki and then Deke for alliteration. And then Pavel would come up to you and he'd hear the highlights from the game. He goes, I love Datsuki and Deke last night. Things mm-hmm. like that. So those are the moments that stand out for me. Not so much necessarily one call. Or a moment, do you remember the fight that Pavel had with Corey Perry? I do. Yeah, and, you know, and even, you know, saying, I'm coming for Pavel next, and they tell Ablocator and mic'd up, and he has a fight with Corey Perry and really held his own and had a goal and an assist and a fight that night. And then the Red Wings got him a beautifully framed picture with his fight and the game sheet, and they gave it to Pavel, and he comes out of the dressing room, and I'm at Joe Lewis Arena underneath the stands where Pavel would walk out, and we're walking out to the car. And I said, what are you carrying there? And there's this huge picture in this brown wrapping paper, right? Mm-hmm. So he unfolds it. He goes, love this, show you. And he unwraps it. I sat right, right in front of Pavel on the bus, mm-hmm. right? So I knew Pavel, who sat with Igor. So I knew them both pretty well. Even when Pavel's English wasn't good, it was damn good. I think he was just ignoring Brett Hall at the time because <laughs> Brett would drive him crazy. But Brett will tell you, Pavel, besides Adam O, is one of the greatest players he's ever played with. So Pavel unwraps, unwraps the, and my dog's, my dog's going to go crazy here because the doorbell just rang. Jack, that's Jack Daniels, the dog. He needs a drink. So uh, he, 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 unwraps the, um, he, he unwraps the paper, and he shows me the picture the Red Wings had got him. And it's a the, the frame, as I mentioned, with the game sheet, the picture of him with... Uh, fighting Corey Perry and it's signed by Gordie Howe hmm. for the Gordie Howe hat trick you know his fight with Corey Perry the game sheet from the game Gordie Howe hat trick signed by Gordie Howe so That's Pavel awesome. was pretty proud so I loved anything that Pavel did you know as a play-by-play guy I think most will tell you if you just wait I mean, the Ranger days right before mm-hmm. the LA Kings you just waited for for Gretzky to come over the boards you never knew what he was going to do and imagine or the or the Oilers or the Oilers, you know, it's just you, you wait for the greats to play. And every time you just didn't know what Zetterberg or Datsuk or Eisenman or Fedorov or any of those greats were going to do. So I love all those moments. Hmm. You went through one of the most difficult things anyone can go through when you lost your son. 
and you started the Jamie Daniels Foundation in his memory. Can you tell us what the message of that foundation is and, and how maybe people can help? Well, thank you for asking about that. Yes, we lost Jamie uh, on December 7th of 2016 uh, due to substance use disorder. He'd been sober for seven months in Florida when he got patient brokered by uh, unscrupulous people and greed. And if, uh, I won't go into the whole patient brokering issue, but if people want, they can Google it, how they take unsuspecting kids or adults for that matter, offer them services, uh, and all the while just try to get them addicted. Again, you're never not really addicted. You try to be sober for the rest of your life, but every day is a struggle. But they try to get you back into the cycle to build the insurance industry. And unfortunately, Jamie got built in uh, in that house where he got duped into going after he'd been sober for seven months working in a law firm studying for his LSATs. They waited an hour to call um, paramedics while they cleaned up the house and left him there. So it was an awful circumstance, but it, it took about, uh, I don't know, nine months or so before I spoke out about it because you didn't get the toxicology reports, even though we, we knew what it was. And it was, uh, you know, Jamie was definitely scared of Beatles, but it was a pill which he shouldn't have taken. But the doctor, who was a so-called addiction doctor, put him on a generic form of Xanax, which is something that you should never be on. And we didn't know. So Jamie, feeling good about himself, took something at the house and it was laced with fentanyl. And it killed him. Now, to your question, what do we speak of? Well, when we finally came out publicly, and you can imagine when Jamie passed, my family in Toronto and in Calgary did not know because Jamie would talk to them. He was through sobriety or going through sobriety. He'd been clean, uh, trying to get back on the right path, which he was. And he talked to my family. We didn't tell my family about it. We didn't say a word to my siblings because why? We were ashamed of it. Mm. And it is the shame and stigma that can preclude recovery. And if it's not happening in your house, thank God it's not, because upwards of 190 kids or young adults or even older adults now who are addicted die every day in America, upwards of 70,000 people. And on 60 Minutes, just last the other night, they had on an entire show about the white-collar crime and the pharmaceutical industry, which kills. So this is what we speak of, and we need safe, long-term, affordable, sober housing, and that is our goal of what we're trying to do and raise money for to build it here in southeast Michigan. We've already had the filings. We're going to build an 80-unit facility, apartment facility, which will be monitored, get people in, in job, job placement there, fitness center there it's going to be with recovery high school which will be the first of its kind in the united states wow. so that's what we're trying to do we've written eighty thousand dollars in grants since COVID 19 hit and it's so important because isolation and recovery is really hard so whether it be teleconferencing so kids can get to their meetings uh, we have a recovery program a, a drug-free dorm with recovery coaches which is like a fitness coach someone you can rely on at Michigan State University, we're looking to get into more college. So uh, people can donate at jamiedanielsfoundation.org. Mm. And uh, that's what we raised money for last year with the celebrity roast of Mickey Redmond. We're roasting Scotty Bowman this year. It'll be virtual. It'll mm -hmm. be online, hoping for TV, a prepackaged show. But that's what we're doing this year, roasting Scotty. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, it, and by the way, it's going to be, uh, we, we hope, I mean, I don't know where it's going to be picked up, but we've got great auction items and it'll, jamiedanielsfoundation.org is the place to go. And we've got game use sticks from Alexander Ovechkin, Connor McDavid, Nathan McKinnon, Jack Eichel, Carey Price, Dano Chara, Jack Hughes, Nikita Kucherov, and golf trips and hotel stays, a home in Costa Rica for rent. So 
we've got tributes coming in from Hollywood celebrities and NHL stars past and present. So it's going to be a great night for Scotty, who's going to do a Zoom roast with Dave Hodge as the MC, Dennis Hull, Jim Ralph, Ian Bag among the roasters, which will be brought on throughout the show. So it's probably going to run late September. We're mm-hmm. still waiting for the date to see where hockey's at, to see where baseball's at, try to find an open night where people can find it on YouTube and Facebook and online. So if you don't mind, I'll reach out to you before so you can help spread the word too. It'll be it'll be a fun night for Scotty, who's going to turn 87 wow. when we run this. And he is still so amazingly intact. His mental capacity is unbelievable for remembering things. He told me he just took the train up with his wife, Suella, from Florida to get to Buffalo. And, he, and then he drove his car from Washington to Buffalo and knew every road, every mountain he had to go through, everywhere he went. I'm going, oh, my God god how he remembers things so it's uh, unbelievable so i think it'll be a really fun night and we hope to raise a lot of money to continue to do what jamie daniels foundation.org is doing well kudos to you for making something positive out of an unfortunate situation so i definitely help to promote that as well and, thank you and then one last thing ken you wrote the book if these walls could talk um how much of a line do you have to walk of writing a book like that with the stories of things that are sometimes behind the scenes yeah um i did walk a line and you know i i did some things i didn't want to put in print there were there were some stories there and i can you know even even now i I, yeah i probably shouldn't so there were some that i just thought okay it's funny but, uh, you know, you better not. And some of those involved Brett Hall because, you know, Brett could just speak his mind. It was hilarious. But I also know that Brett probably wouldn't care, but maybe the people who were affected might. Mm-hmm. So that was really it. It was nothing so much. Even today, I think there's a trust there. I mean, Scotty trusted me. Mike Babcock trusted me. Now Jeff Blaschel. I think they know you're the home team broadcaster. You know some things you learn along the way that, you know, during within season that you just know how to phrase things or keep it out mm-hmm. that you just wouldn't say or, or say it differently in a book when it came time to write it um yeah there in terms of the red wings yes there were some things outside of that from life no i made some comments about some others of my broadcasting career which i figured what the hell it happened and right. i'm trying to whether it be a teaching moment or something else but it was uh, cathartic for me to write it especially because when i started it and uh my son who was still alive when i began the book uh, in September or so of 16, and when I called Jamie in Florida, and he said, why are you writing a book now? Why don't you wait until you're 80, and most of the people you're talking about won't be here anymore, and then you can say whatever the hell you want. <laughs> and I said, that was my son, he has a sense of humor, and that's why, you know, J- Jamie always said, because I sucked at golf, he said, Dad, you need a summer job. And unfortunately, he gave me one with planning for his foundation and everything else. But he had a great sense of humor, which is why we do the roast. But I said, Jamie, if I don't write the book now, I'm going to forget half the things. <laughs> and that, like, as you mentioned, to start this interview, which thank you for, for giving me the opportunity, when you said, what are you doing during the pause? And I said, going back and, and looking through old footage and through scrapbooks and bringing it back now. That's what the book did. The book gave me the opportunity to go back before I do forget it all mm-hmm. and think about my career and honor some people, people like that I love, like like John Shannon and Brian Williams and Todd Bertuzzi as a player who was so good to my son Jamie and Patrick Kane. I took Jamie down to the room to see Patrick Kane in a moment like that, and I put a picture in there with Patrick and Jamie together, and I didn't really meet Patrick before. And Patrick walked out of the room, and he sees me and Jamie. He said, Ken, how you doing? And I said, great. And I said, I don't know if I really met you before. He said, yeah, but I grew up watching you. I 
lived at Pat Verbeek's house hmm. when I was playing hockey in the Detroit area. And he turned to my son and he said, your dad's the best. Wow. Love him and Mickey. And that meant so much. And then I take a picture of Patrick and Jamie together. And in behind the photo is Jonathan Taves. And Jamie sees it on my phone. He goes, oh, my God, Dad, you rocked this. Not only did I get Kane, you got Taves in the background. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> that's perfect. So just moments like that and thinking back at that. And then I could write about that. And I was, I was going to put that in. And then it became the introduction because Jamie passed. Mm. So when he did, I stopped for three months. And then I had to get going on the end of it and get the book out. And um, it was cathartic. Going back and really, you know, just dedicated to Jamie. So a good time for reflection. Some things I couldn't say, and, and that's okay. It was just my career and Red Wing stories and Scotty Bowman stories, Mickey stories that uh, I, I think people have enjoyed uh, beyond just being a Red Wing fan. It's mostly Red Wing, but I think otherwise just about career. And as we spoke of earlier, you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And if that's the case, then I've been a, a lucky guy. Very well said. Ken, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll be back in the booth by hopefully December or January. Yeah, I hope to see you at uh, Madison Square Garden, which from one of the worst broadcast spots has become one of the best now in the <laughs> NHL. So I'm looking forward to that. And, Thanks. And leave some room for me at that Detroit press room. A lot of food oh, options, but not enough, seat, not enough seating. <laughs> oh, no, there is. And the new one, oh, no, there's enough seating now. You'll be okay. All right, You'll all right. Okay. You'll be good. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure, man. Great job by Ken for the work he is doing with the Jamie Daniels Foundation. Be sure to visit jamiedanielsfoundation.org to see how you can help or bid on great sports memorabilia. Stay tuned for the next episode of Mike Check on Sports. Take care. Brush your hair.